0: This is Campus on the Common, a podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. I'm Emerson College alumnus and podcasting professor, Chance Dorlin. Broadcasting from Emerson College's School of Communication in Boston, Massachusetts. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Exploring ideas like multimedia storytelling, media ethics, and how new technologies affect the communication industry. Today, we hear from two members of Emerson College's Robbins Speech, Language, and Hearing Center, about how graduate students are using cutting-edge speech pathology services to help transgender people use the voice that best matches their identity.
1: My name is Jocelyn Legere. I'm a clinical instructor at the Robin Speech, Language, and Hearing Center. I have been here since September 2017, and I see a variety of clients here in the clinic. Um, including some individual um, transgender voice clients and um, myself and one of the other clinical instructors, Jenna um, Castro-Casbon, we um, were involved in piloting the first transgender voice group in the clinic. And I am
2: Barb Worth. I am also a clinical instructor here in the Robbins Center. I'm also an affiliated faculty member. I I teach the voice disorders course. Um, I arrived here in September of 2018, and I specifically came to join Emerson's um, CSD department as uh, a clinical instructor for transgender voice. Um, I have been specializing in transgender voice for the past five years, Previously at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and now here.
0: So the Department of Communication Studies and Disorders, unfortunately, doesn't often receive as much press and attention as other departments at Emerson College. Let's make that change now. What's the history of the department, and and what types of research and projects are students and faculty currently involved with there?
1: Well, it was interesting for me to go through um, the history because I didn't know all of it. So I was um, excited to hear that um, communication disorders have been addressed at Emerson College since its founding in 1880. Um, We were not yet a department at that time, but um, communication disorders were talked about in some of the the classes and were called at the time defects of speech. Uh, Then in 1935, uh, an existed undergraduate degree curriculum uh, combined into Emerson's new department of correction of speech disorders. And um, this was among the first in the country to offer a bachelor's degree in the field. Uh, then in 1953, a dedicated clinic called the Robin Speech Land Language and Hearing Center um, was founded. And it expanded to offering a master's degree in 1955. In 1965, the Thayer Lindsley Parent-Centered Program for Hearing Impaired Children was also established um, and was innovating in using a family-focused therapy approach. And since 1997, our clinic is housed at 216 Tremont Street. So we've had multiple homes along the years, but um, now we are on Tremont Street. And in terms of research that is done here, we, uh, there's research in a variety of fields. Um, we have research that looks at nonverbal communication in children with autism spectrum disorders um, using infrared motion to capture and and track um, eye movements and how these kids um, interpret facial expressions. We have research focusing on um, adults living with chronic aphasia and exploring strategies to improve their participation in their daily lives and um, using different types of alternative augmentative communication systems. We have research looking at the emergence of early social communication and language skills in children um, with and without speech disorders, uh, with and without autism. And, you know, students have the opportunity to do research in areas of their own interest um, from, you know, learning about the parental experience using baby signs to um, examining. Gaze patterns and how bilingual language might impact um, children in their learning, and and now evolving into doing some research with um, voice and transgender voice.
0: So, we're talking today specifically about transgender voice training that your department, as you just mentioned, Jocelyn, is currently involved with. So. Barb, it sounds like from what you just said, you've been involved with this type of training and the people who are receiving these services for several years. Could you talk about what's generally included in that process and who are these people?
2: So um, there's a very large transgender community in the Boston area. Um, A lot of these individuals get their care through Fenway Health Center. Um, my understanding is that there's uh, over 3,000 transgender individuals who receive their care um, at, at Fenway Health. So this uh, now falls within our scope of practice as speech-language pathologists. And this is an area um, in our field that has a lot of excitement right now. So I would say that uh, traditionally, uh, because it is such a close community, Uh, People are referred here uh, to the Robbins Center by word of mouth um, or perhaps by their uh, mental health uh, specialists and or their primary care physicians. So really those referrals come from many different places. With regards to what we address in in, in, uh, transgender voice, so those individuals who were assigned male at birth who are now uh, looking to socially transition to having a more feminine presentation, um, those individuals, when they take hormones, the feminizing hormones do not impact their voice. So they may have other changes in their body, but they do not have a change in their voice. So our uh, therapy primarily focuses those individuals who are transfeminine. So we look at many aspects of their communication. We look at things like the pitch of their voice and resonance, whether it be more um, vibrating in their chest or in their head. We look at pitch change and intonational patterns. We also look at things like word choice. So there are certain words that may may be stereotypically more feminine or masculine. And then we also look at body language and other aspects of communication. For those that were assigned female at birth um, who are looking for a more masculine presentation, they are fortunate in that the hormones that they take Um, with the testosterone they take actually help to lower the pitch of the voice. Um, So many of those individuals are satisfied with their their voice after taking hormones. However, occasionally they're not. And so with those individuals, we address whatever concerns that they may have. Um, Sometimes those concerns might be that the voice doesn't really have kind of that base quality that they're looking for Um, or that their voice feels a little thin. Obviously, whenever any of these individuals present to us and have any concerns about their voice and how it's functioning, um, we address those concerns. So those concerns might be things like they're having difficulty difficulties projecting or, they, or they're having hoarseness in their voice. If we have uh, specific concerns, we will refer them to an otolaryngologist, uh, otherwise known as an ENT or an ear, nose and throat doctor, to make sure that they uh, are checked from a medical perspective and make sure that there's nothing specifically wrong with their vocal folds.
1: And I think um, it's also important to, to mention, Barbara, that some, of, some individuals that we see are not really looking to have a feminine or masculine voice, but they're aiming to have a more gender gender neutral voice. Well, absolutely,
2: because you know there are individuals who who, although they're not comfortable with the gender in which they were assigned, um, they they may reject our society's um, uh, concept of a binary system, meaning male, female, feminine, masculine, and their sense of their own gender perhaps changes on a daily basis or moment to moment, or maybe is more situational. And so those individuals who come to see us, they want um, perhaps some some more subtle changes or, um, uh, yeah, I would say some more subtle changes in their communication style to help them feel more comfortable in their day-to-day communication. Some of those individuals also want to be able to what we call code switch, meaning that they may want in a given situation to use more of a feminine or more of a masculine presentation, depending upon where they are. And sometimes that's for safety reasons. Um, I know bathrooms get sort of a lot of talk and press, but it is a real safety concerns for some of, some individuals, uh, and they want to make sure that um, there are not any issues in public and that they are not discriminated against in any way.
0: Jocelyn, I'd love to know more specifically about how this operates in your department of Emerson College. Is, is an individual coming in multiple days a week for some sort of training session with uh, experts having to do with everything we just mentioned? Is Is there any cost involved with this? What's the kind of daily routine for the people that you two are both helping?
1: So. Typically, um, they would, um, you know, call our main desk, if you will, and uh, they fill out a referral form um, where they, you know, they give us their information and medical information if it's appropriate and what, why they want to come and see us. Um, And then they are scheduled, they come typically once a week for a one hour session, and that can be either an individual session or a group session. Um, The first session, when they come, uh, they go through an evaluation process where we, you know, we always routinely check a person's hearing. We look at their, um, you know, all the oral structure involved in speech and and voice production. Uh, We take recordings of their voice to do an analysis of their pitch range. We listen to the quality of their voice. And as Barbara mentioned, if we have concerns that their voice is sounding hoarse, we might send them um, to an ear, nose and throat doctor just to make sure that they don't have, for example, vocal nodules or any other medical concern. Um, And then they come once a week and they um, receive therapy from a graduate student clinician under the close supervision of of one of us, a clinical instructor, and we will also sometimes be actively involved in in the session, um, kind of coming in and out, um, and we are always observing how the session is going so that we can provide guidance to both the student and uh, the client.
2: And the cost is about $25 a session, which is, um, you know, I guess it's quite comparable to what some people would pay as a copay if they were going to go see a medical provider or or what have you.
0: That seems lower than I would have expected. Is there some sort of grant or other process that keeps the cost so low?
2: Not that we're aware of. No. (laughs) No, and that's pretty much the standard here. You know, in this center, we see um, all sorts of different people um, to address their communication from infants through geriatric uh, individuals. And um, that's pretty much the cost. Right. yeah and and I
1: think that is kind of sort of one of the reasons why um, the clinic initially um, thought of offering services for this population, at least one of the reasons is that for some of these individuals, uh, their medical insurance will not cover voice treatment, voice therapy. Um, and it can be very expensive if you go to a private clinic mm-hmm. or a medical setting. So um, mm-hmm. it's a way for, you know, for us to meet that uh, population's needs in a way that that works for them.
0: Is there a certain amount of time that um, someone involved with your services usually spends with your Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders before, um, maybe for lack of a better term, graduate or are satisfied with the progress that they've made? And, And how many people are you seeing each week?
2: Yeah, I think it varies. There are individuals who might come for one semester. There are individuals who might come for two semesters in a row, skip a semester, and then come back. You know, when I counsel individuals about this process, I usually tell them that it usually takes about a year in order to modify their voice. But obviously, there are lots of exceptions to that rule, either a shorter amount
1: of time or a longer amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, like I'm looking at, I haven't been here that long, but um, sort of going by the individuals that I've seen, um, they have done the group over the summer and now they're coming for individual uh, services, you know, to to fine-tune their voice and fine-tune or or continue working on whatever areas of what they feel is a weakness remaining. Others started out doing individual first and then when they offered the group, they took advantage of um, coming to the group again to to continue to to practice their new vocal um, techniques and and, vocal use. In, in a comfortable and supportive environment. And to
2: ask you question about numbers, I believe we have 13 or 14 uh, clients right now, um, and we are looking at different models, looking into the future, and we're hoping to increase those numbers slightly.
0: Stepping back for a moment from the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Emerson College, um, perhaps to Boston or the rest of Massachusetts or or even the United States, I'd I'd love to hear what other universities, what other um, medical institutes, uh, even the private sector is doing with transgender voice training. Is is it similar to what's happening at Emerson? Is Emerson really out ahead of the pack or or is this good work happening in in multiple places around the country?
2: Uh, Yes, it is happening in in multiple places around the country. Um, I would say that it is a burgeoning field area of our field. Um, It it was actually quite exciting. We had our national conference, uh, the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Conference was in Boston this year. And uh, my understanding is that most most of the sessions that uh, addressed uh, transgender voice were sort of sold out. In, in other words, they were at full capacity. So I would say over the last five, six years, this has really become um, you know a really uh, growing area of our profession. So um, there have been a few uh, university clinics around the country who have had similar programs, one of being the, one being the College of St. Rose, which is in New York. Um, I understand that University of Connecticut also has one, and I'm sure that there. Oh, and I'm sorry, and George Washington University. All of them have speech language pathology clinics, and they offer similar types of programs. So, when this this program was developed a few years ago, um, at the the uh, program director reached out to those universities to get a sense from them um, what their clinics were like. So, with regards to medical institutions, it has not been until recently uh, that Insurers will pay for voice modification, and many insurers still do not pay for modification. Um, I was very lucky when I worked at Beth Israel Deaconess here in Boston. We were able to um, because of the because we were affiliated with um, otolaryngology, in other words, ear, nose, and throat doctors. We were able to to perform um, instrumental examinations of each individual, and I think that that helped the insurers to, to justify that this was in fact a medical treatment. With regards to private, pe- private providers, I would say that's probably the largest area um, that people are receiving these types of services. Um, there are few private practitioners in the Boston area who provide transgender voice therapy. Um, and then there are a network of us throughout the, the country um, who are doing such work.
0: Yeah, so it's it's great to to hear so much is going on, uh, and of course, you like to think, uh, certainly at Emerson College that we're leading the pack. But it's always great to hear that there's so much work going on, you know, in Boston and the in the area, and also across the United States and the different entities that you just mentioned, uh, Barbara. Uh,
1: one more thing that I'd like to say that I forgot to mention earlier, as I was talking about the history of of the Robbins Clinic and the research we do, is that the impetus for offering services to the transgender population actually came from a graduate student here um, by the name of Kevin Pasternak. And he initially um, presented the idea of offering services to the transgender population. And he did a research project, you know, really looking into whether there was a need in the Boston area and how to go about, um, Offering services, and um, he and Betsy McCucci, who was the director here, who just retired in 2017, really were active in starting to try to uh, set up the program.
0: Well, it sounds like this really is something that is also growing at Emerson as well as other areas of the world and also locally here in Boston. So this is all great to hear. Um, We just have a few more moments before we have to say goodbye for today's episode, but I definitely want to know future plans for this program moving forward um, in Emerson. And then also, uh, if either of you have any inkling of where you think this industry itself might go, is this one of those things where there just needs to be more service providers for more people who need this? Service to help them with their with their voice, or is this something where there there's going to be more breakthroughs that might change how these services are offered themselves?
1: Well, I think the the direction we're going is we're we're still you know fine tuning the systems and potentially having more groups, um, potentially setting up what we might call more of a, a maintenance group for clients who maybe don't need weekly. Um, intervention, but might want to meet periodically to kind of just check in and, you know, tweak their voices a little bit. Um, so it's still very much a work in progress as to what's going to be the best way to meet um, these clients' needs.
2: And with regards to the future, I would say that um, I think the word is spreading that this is an area that speech-language pathologists address. I think that um, I would like to think that as our society uh, becomes uh, more accepting of individuals who are transgender and non-binary and gender non-conforming, that uh, individuals will seek out our our help in this manner. I think that um, clinicians are still getting trained. So there are conferences and workshops that are available to train speech language pathologists um, in how to do this. I'm, I'm thrilled at the idea that we're training um, the next generation of mm-hmm. speech-language pathologists to do this type of work. So I think that as, as, our, as, our, um, as individuals in our profession become more comfortable and more experienced, I think the sky's the limit. I think, yeah. yeah.
0: Campus on the Common is a production of the School of Communication at Emerson College. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Emerson College alumnus and podcasting professor, Chance Dorlin.